Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Welcome to the channel, and thanks very much for joining me because I'm really excited to share this book with you today. This is Paul Roquet's new book, Ambient Media, Japanese Atmospheres of Self, and it came out with the University of Minnesota Press in 2016. Now, someone recently um, wrote in with feedback, and I'm always grateful for feedback, and this was super warmly delivered and very generously delivered, but feedback that asked me not to be so enthusiastic about the books that I introduce on the channel. And I'm so sorry, person, I'm going to have to just continue doing that because I am really, really excited about this book. So there you have it. Um, I think it's great. Genuinely, genuinely. Here's uh, one of the reasons I think it's great. Not only does it introduce to us a constellation of case studies that are inherently really beautiful and really fascinating and inspiring to think with, but it also uses this particular case or set of cases that the book focuses on to open up ideas and ways of thinking uh, that have much, much broader relevance, uh, much more widely beyond the particular context that he's talking about. Okay, so the book looks specifically at the context of Japan from the 1970s through the 2000s to take on the emergence of self with and through ambient media. So the book looks at the phenomenon and the transformations of what Paul calls ambient subjectification. And it does this by taking us through ambient video, ambient music, We've got film, we've got literature, lots and lots of works that kind of embody the kinds of transformations in how in modern Japan, people were thinking about living, working with um, concepts of selfhood, concepts of atmosphere, of air, of ambience, um, and using media to negotiate these in different ways. He also, at various points of the book, is super, super generous in acknowledging and giving us an entree into the particular works that, or some of at least of the particular works that inspired how he was thinking about this. And so as you work through the book, you'll read about Heidegger, you'll read about Foucault, you'll read about Nicholas Rose, you'll read about the kinds of work um, by lots and lots of thinkers that you might find also particularly useful in thinking well beyond uh, the phenomenon of ambient media in Japan. However, I highly recommend, um, as you're reading the book, and and I definitely recommend getting your hands on a copy, doing what you're going to hear us talking about about midway through. And that is have um, have kind of one hand on the book and the other hand um, on a computer or a laptop of some sort. Because one of the really beautiful things about the book is it it introduces some works um, that are accessible, at least in parts and in versions and translations online, that are also really inspiring to think with and to experience on their own. Okay, so with that, I will let you get right to it. It's, it's a rather extended 
interview um, and I will uh, let you go right now. But I just want to say thank you as ever for listening, for your support of the channel um, and happy exploring because the book, especially if you find a way through it that um, helps you or that lets you engage the works that Paul's talking about as well as how he's talking about them in the pages. It's a really inspiring path to explore. Thanks for listening and have fun. I'm here today to talk with Paul Roquet about his awesome new book, Ambient Media. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Paul. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for making time to be with me today. And thank you for writing truly, truly a fascinating book. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, let's start um, with the traditional question for the channel. How did you come to work on Japan and to work on modern Japan in particular? It goes back, I think, to around middle school. I became really interested in reading a lot of literature and translation and watching a lot of films from other parts of the world. That became sort of my way of learning about other countries and other parts of the the planet. And then I was lucky when I went to high school, they had just started a Japanese program and an exchange program between Osaka and California. So I uh, was happy to go to Osaka my first summer of high school and have been going back and forth ever since on various programs and fellowships and different things. So how did you decide to work on ambient media and um, sort of take an approach to media studies and, um, you know, kind of devote the work and the research to the project that we're talking about? What brought you to this project? Yeah, I came about it from a number of different angles. I think I, I, I'd done a ambient music and experimental music radio show all through college oh. and had um, produced some of my own uh, field recording-based compositions. So I'd been thinking about ambience as a musical aesthetic for quite a while at that point. And then in graduate school, reading literature, watch, uh, doing film studies, and uh, reading a lot of scholarship on uh, different kinds of media a lot of it was very ideologically oriented and sort of doing readings of the discourse and sort of the intellectual history, um, the ideas. But it, I always felt that uh, something was missing in a lot of the, the analyses, particularly on um, works coming out from the time period that I focus on in the book from the, the 70s onward. Um, but at the same time, when I was reading reviews, um, more popular press for these same works, uh, reviewers would often mention how the works made them feel or how they they came away feeling uh, after having read the, the novel or watched the film or listened to the music. Uh, and that really resonated with my own approach to a lot of the works as well. So I, I had a sense that something, something was there that uh, more sort of ideologically oriented analyses wasn't quite getting at, uh, but that was important for how um, these different media works were actually being used and approached and enjoyed. And are you still making time to work with music yourself? Like, are you still, I mean, one of the things that come, here's one of the reasons I asked that, um, aside from just being interested, is that at various points throughout the book, when you bring your own experience into the chapters in various ways, and we'll talk about that in the hour to come, um, the, the trope of, or the practice of composition as a way of moving through space, as a way of experiencing space, comes up repeatedly in a really fascinating way so um so what about your own musical composition yeah are you still making time for that yeah yeah i lately i've been doing sort of going back and forth between video and sound and think about audiovisual aesthetics as as a more synesthetic way of approaching some of the same questions um but yeah that's one of one of the origins of this project also after college 
Uh, I was on a Thomas J. Watson fellowship uh, doing soundscape research. So I was traveling around mostly the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, interviewing people about soundscapes from their childhoods and how the soundscape of the, the city or the, the village or wherever it was where they lived had changed over time. Uh, and at the same time, doing field recordings of my own and trying to capture some sense of the soundscape in all of these different places. Uh, so that was I think my first time just kind of standing on street corners, trying to get a sense of what was going on and trying to figure out ways to capture that. That's awesome. So this actually started as a graduate project, right? As a dissertation. So can you say a little bit about that transformation? Like from dissertation to book, did anything major change for you, either in how you were thinking about the architecture of the project or in what you thought you were arguing or the kind of texture of the narrative? Yeah, I was, I was fortunate to have a, a graduate school context where I was allowed to really think of it as a book from early on. So in that sense, I, I had uh, had been thinking a lot about sort of the, the reading experience and the larger structure. Um, but the, the largest thing that had changed, I realized um, in revising from the dissertation, there were a number of particularly ideas I think particularly uh, Foucault's influence and the sort of ideas about techniques of the self that it seemed almost too relevant to what I was talking about. And I think I'd really resisted engaging with some of those ideas or I needed to spend some time on my own thinking through uh, these questions without um, engaging with that at the dissertation stage. And then so later on during the revisions, I, I revisited a lot of the, the larger theoretical contexts surrounding ambience and atmosphere, and that was a big part of the revision process. So you just talked about the reading experience, and I think that's a, a good place to start as we dive into the book itself. So the reading experience here for the reader um, who opens the book and dives into the introduction opens with jellyfish. The introduction opens with a, a rather wonderful account, actually, of experiencing an ambient jellyfish DVD in Tokyo. So, Paul, could you start us down our path here for the podcast and in this medium by talking a little bit about these jellyfish and maybe using that to open up um, how that's relevant to uh, kind of the idea of ambience and the, the main theme of the book? Sure, yeah. One, one image I had... Um, throughout the research for the book actually was this scene from the Kurosawa Kyoshi film, uh, Bright Future, where these poisonous jellyfish are released into the Tokyo uh, sewer system and they go out into the rivers and, and kind of populate the city. And it's this, this amazing image where they're both simultaneously these kind of peaceful creatures that are drifting around and semi-transparent. But at the same time, there's this sense of threat um, that there's... It's not clear how many there are. They're sort of multiplying. They're, they're poisonous, electrical. Um, so this, this image stuck with me uh, as I was thinking about ambience, both in ways that it was appealing and sort of had a, uh, a productive and alluring quality to it, but also in ways that I find uh, troubling and, and threatening and kind of scary at the same time. So there's something about jellyfish that seemed to capture that. And then as I was... Uh, once I was on my radar and I was you know, reading news about the jellyfish populations in the Pacific and all these different uh, encounters with jellyfish, and recently in octopi, octopi as well, they seem to be kind of growing the population almost out of control. So there's this interesting way that it's simultane they're simultaneously sort of soothing creatures, but they also have a kind of latent danger to them. So that was, that was an image um, and a creature, I think, that captures a lot of what I'm getting at in terms of how ambience is working more generally. Awesome. Thank you so much. So what I'll do um, 
to kind of get us further in is just spend a couple minutes laying a little bit of groundwork um, and then we'll open it back up again. So the book explains the emergence of self with and through ambient media. And you talk about this in terms of what you call ambient subjectification. And we'll talk about uh, this idea of subjectification lots and lots and lots in the conversation to come. So ambient subjectification, as the book shows, has been a key technique of contemporary self-care in Japan since the 1970s. But the book asks, how did we come to understand atmosphere and ambience as a vital component of self-care? And you talk here, um, and this is in the words of the book, about understanding the rise of ambience as the neoliberal phase in a shifting relationship between the self and the surrounding air. Okay, so this is some of the groundwork for listeners um, to um, understand kind of where we're coming from and how we're going to pick apart these some of these ideas. So the relationship between the self and the surrounding air. This is really interesting. In the introduction, you talk about some of the work that you're building on, and um, you, you've already mentioned Foucault and his ideas of techniques of the self. You also talk about Heidegger and some of Heidegger's notions and bring us into kind of one of the major interpreters of Heidegger, um, and this is Watsuji Tetsuro. Now, he read Being in Time in his own work called Climate and Culture. And he talks about, or you kind of contextualize his work in terms of understanding atmosphere as the original force that ties a nation together. Okay, so the reason that I'm bringing us here is that this brings us out into the importance more generally of atmosphere and specifically of air insofar as it um, kind of motivates what's happening in this period, and it also motivates the work of the book. You talk here about a contemporary cultural emphasis on reading the air, and you also talk about the idea of reading the air as a kind of politics or aesthetics. So let's maybe start um, by diving into this notion. Um, what is it to read the air? And for you, what's important um, for us to understand about what you think is important about that concept? Well, one reason I, I think it's important to go back to Watsuji, so when he's responding to Heidegger's sort of magnum opus about time, um, he felt like there was a short shrift being given to space and questions of uh, landscape and climate and geography in particular. And his, his work now is often written off as being what we might call environmentally determinist, that culture is just an emerging phenomenon based on geographical factors. And it is that in, in many aspects, but he's also getting at something very interesting, I think, in trying to say it's not just about sort of history, it's not just about sort of the human realm, um, but there is something to the space itself that's crafting uh, the way people behave and the way people think about themselves and the way people come together. Um, so the... The more recent emphasis um, on what I translate as reading the air, of, of engaging with the air as a way to understand proper forms of behavior, of how you should respond to people, how you should act in particular situations, um, I think goes back to that uh, moment of trying to root sort of cultural practices in the space itself or in the, the climate, uh, the clues coming across from the climate itself. But what was interesting, I think, in the very way, similar to the way Foucault talks about sexuality being talked about you know, more and more, uh, and the talk itself having a certain form of productive energy, um, as air becomes talked about more and more in the, the 70s and 80s, um, 
up until the present as something that's not self-evident. It's it's assumed that there's a correct way to behave in certain situations, and we can figure out what that is by being sensitive uh, to the environment and to how other people are acting. But it's actually becoming much more difficult to, to, to figure out what those rules are. Um, so I was interested in the rise of this discourse surrounding air and reading the air, not being able to read the air, learning how to read the air as a, a similar way that um, the environment or the atmosphere is becoming more and more of a question. Um, if Watsuji thought it was something kind of there, primordially sort of shaping culture in a particular site going all the way back, um, particularly from the, the 60s and 70s onward, it becomes something that's not uh, clearly legible, if not, not particularly uh, readily apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it becomes a, a, a cultural discussion. What, what is the air doing? How is it shaping people? Um, how might we design it to get people to behave the way we want to, what we want them to? Now, you talk here in the introduction as well about a shift in the way atmosphere worked and the way it was understood. Beginning in the 1970s, and then the period from the 1970s onward into the 2000s is really the the focal um, kind of temporal period that the book looks at. Beginning in the 1970s, you argue here, atmosphere was becoming ambient. And as you'd say here in the introduction, the emergence and the proliferation of new techniques of ambient subjectification in the 70s reflected a shift in how a person was understood, right? And this was a shift away from a kind of collective self-understanding and toward a model that was, in the words of the book, rooted in a liberal idea of autonomy and self-determination. You talk about this in terms of an idea of techniques of the neoliberal self. So this is also, um, this emerges as a a kind of key concept in the book as well. So for you, um, again, kind of what's important for us to understand about what's important um, for you about this idea of the neoliberal self as it shapes what's happening here? Yeah, it's complex in that it goes back, I think, to an earlier sort of moment of liberalism, um, particularly... um, in the, the U.S. context originally, and then eventually in Japan as well, a sort of Taylorist approach uh, to organizing human behavior, of trying to make it more efficient, more rationalized, um, but also sort of breaking it down to be able to produce predictable behaviors over time. Um, so when it reaches um, what I'm describing as a sort of neoliberal moment, and that there, I, I struggled a little bit with what terms terminology to use, but there's there's something I, I think specific about um, the idea of a neoliberal context um, that I think is important um, here as well in this kind of illusion of autonomy. So it's it's this belief that you're in control and you're being uh, told that you're you're in control of your life and you have choices to make and, and the freedom to choose. Um, but at the same time, those same choices are are working into a larger. Um, patterns of behavior that are actually not that different from say, the earlier Taylorist model of playing music in the background to make sure everyone's working at the same pace and as productive as possible. Uh, so it's this sense of autonomy and, and personal choice and, and the freedom to choose. But at the same time, and this is where the Foucault's idea of governmentality, I think, is very useful as well, that it's, it's creating forms of behavior that are also wrapped up in larger um, 
normative ways of sort of participating in society, but because you feel like you're doing it yourself and it's self-motivated and it's, it's a, your own free choice. Um, it's all the more effective, uh, for, for being so. This actually really takes us, uh, or it really nicely takes us into the first chapter of the book, the, the first body chapter. This is a chapter that looks at the birth of modern background music, and it specifically contextualizes Muzak in Japan as a kind of environmental music that's part of a larger movement toward environmental art. Now, one of the interesting things that's happening in this chapter is what you describe as an Eric Satie boom in the late 1970s. So Eric Satie's work becomes central to the Japanese avant-garde in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, so can you talk about that a little bit? For you, what's uh, perhaps most interesting and important about this boom and its impact on um, sort of music and, and sound and ambience in Japan in this period? Yeah, I think it's, it's fascinating to me as a moment when the avant-garde and its interest in landscape and environment and sort of radicalizing these designed environments um, comes up smack against this kind of history of more banal utilitarian background music that it has been going you know, at the same time. Um, and it's something that I guess fascinates me about ambient music in general as well. If you, I spent a lot of time in the ambient section of Tower Records in Shibuya, this massive eight-story record store in ambient the ambient music section is sort of far in the back on one of the upper floors, but it's back to back with the easy listening relaxation section. And I was always sort of standing there watching the, the customers come in and the, the two audiences are, are quite different. The, the shoppers who would go to the experimental music and ambient section versus those who would go to the relaxation music section and the aesthetics of the, the CDs and the, the albums and the books are totally different as well. But I think it's quite significant that they're back to back. They're sort of right next to each other in the record store. Um, and there's something about the Satie boom that brings that. I think it's the first time that these these two audiences really come together. Um, so reading people like Akiyama Kuniharu, the music critic and composer, historian of uh, Japanese film music, um, there was a huge proponent of Satie and one of the, the real leaders of the Satie, what became the Satie boom, by putting together a lot of classical music concerts and these various sort of intermedia events with Satie's works. Um, when he started noticing that a lot of people were coming to the, these shows, younger people who were not necessarily there for a classical music experience or for sort of high culture or avant-garde culture necessarily, but were there for the relaxation and for this kind of peaceful uh, experience of settee, much in the way his music would come to be played sort of on the, the PA systems in various neighborhoods of Tokyo. So people could walk around and shop to, to settee's music. So he's, he's a composer, even though it's from much earlier. Um, I think early on really recognized that there was a, a strange sort of uh, continuity between avant-garde approaches to music and making it more a part of everyday life, more a part of sort of contexts that are were not traditionally thought of in, in terms of music and composition at that point. Um, that could be something avant-garde, but it could also be something, and it turns out to be something that's very uh, uh, practical and even banal and and the most lowbrow styles of music like relaxation music or background music were also uh, investigating the same regions. So if Satie and before, I think some of John Cage's 
engagement with background music and music earlier on gets at, at similar things. But in Japan, it's really this resurgence of sati um, in the 1970s where these two communities, the avant-garde experimental music community, environmental art community, and the, the Taylorist sort of background music or utilitarian music uh, type of listening really come together. So you mentioned a couple of things that um, really nicely lead us into the next chapter. You talked about everyday life, and you also mentioned the idea of a background. Now, the second chapter takes us into your own experience living close to Shuto Route 3 in Tokyo as a way of considering or opening up a consideration of how ambient media, in the words of the book, provide imaginary sensory landscapes to filter unify and stabilize existing environments. Now, this chapter um, kind of builds on the work and the ideas of Deleuze and Guattari, um, especially in the section on the smooth and the striated in a thousand plateaus, um, insofar as you're arguing here that ambient media provide an absolute background or a unified, coherent, and stable sensory surround, which leads to a sense of sensory cohesion um, in environments that otherwise might not have much holding them together. It's a fascinating, fascinating chapter. The central to this chapter is a notion that you call embodied security. And this builds in part on Tia Denora's um, work in music and everyday life. So, Paul, can you take us into this idea of embodied security? Um, what's important about that and how does that weave into the, um, the kind of the case that you're looking at in this chapter? Yeah, Denora's work I, I find fascinating um, when she describes going back to the the infant or the the unborn child listening to the heartbeat of the mother and sort of latching on to this rhythm. Um, how that's in some ways not that different from, um, for example, she describes a, a fitness class and the use of music in that context, where the, the actual use of particular kinds of rhythmic music with a steady or upbeat pace allows for forms of physicality, forms of exercise um, that you could not actually produce without that musical support or that musical sort of structure to work along and to help sort of keep you on, on the rhythm and keep the whole group together. Um, so thinking about this use of, of music as laying out a kind of lattice work or a sort of map uh, for movement through space, I found really intriguing and, and helpful for understanding how... Um, recordings of various kinds with music, video, other kinds of media, we're doing something similar in the way they're being used as people are, are engaging with them as they're moving through space. So it, I kept thinking about um, people reading these small Japanese paperbacks on the train and sort of as they're, they're reading through the novel and engaging with the spaces and rhythms and textures of the novel, they're also engaging with everything that's going on around them in the train, um, what could be a very packed train that's not at all comforting or relaxing. Um, but there's, there's a way that these small uh, engagements with media are allowing for some other kinds of aesthetic to come through. Um, so looking at the aesthetics of so the video screens that play above the doors in a, in a lot of trains um, nowadays, the way the ads are designed, the way advertising works, um, but also the way individuals are you know, using their phones or using sound or uh, video to sort of condition um, their bodies as they're moving through these spaces, um, this desire to create some kind of continuity. And I think a lot of it goes back to 
what's often said about background music in film that you can you can have lots of cuts and, and show all kinds of different images but if you throw sort of coherent music behind it then somehow it seems to all work together and i think that that logic of of using sort of background track to put uh incoherent random images random uh encounters into a coherent structure something we've really internalized and we're, we often do that uh, sort of without even thinking about it in the use of media while we move around through space, particularly in a, a, uh, environments like Japanese cities. Mm-hmm. Now, this is actually something that comes up really nicely in the next chapter. But before we get there, I just want to kind of briefly mention um, some of the other ways that the this idea is coming up um, in this chapter. So the chapter, building on what you've just mentioned and this idea of embodied security, looks closely at a shift in the landscapes ambient music from the 1980s um, to the 1990s and then to the 2000s. And it looks in particular at three examples um, of these shifts. We have Hosono Harumi, um, an ambient tourist in the 1980s. We have Tetsu Inoue, an ambient otaku of the 1990s. And we have Hatakeyama Chihei, the ambient isolationist of the 2000s. Um, To kind of give listeners a little bit of a flavor of what's going on here, is there one in particular of these um, producers or artists that you're especially interested in that you might want to kind of open up for us a little bit in this context? Sure, yeah. Well, I think um, Hosono is a really uh, crucial figure, not just for thinking about ambience, but for thinking about how the imagery surrounding popular music is, is shifting, starting in the 70s and 80s more generally, from you know, the Magic Orchestra to his, his later work in many different genres. But he was, I think, a, a particularly shifty character to get a hold of uh, for me for this project as well. And that a lot of his approach to ambience is sort of satirical as well, that he, he does a, a whole series of albums with tropical islands on the cover, but then it's never quite clear if these are just meant to be taken as straightforward sort of escapist uh, paradises or whether there's something that he's sort of winking at you as he's doing this that we're, we're playing with um, sort of images of this oceanic experience and this kind of tropical imaginary paradise. But at the same time, we're, we're supposed to recognize that this is kind of absurd at the same time. Um, and in some ways, I think he really inherits uh, Satie's sort of acerbic sort of sense of humor there as well. Um, so figuring out his approach to ambience, which is very different from someone like Brian Eno, who's much more straightforward and I think more takes it much more seriously what, what, uh, ambient music is meant to do. Um, Bosan always comes at it from an interesting angle um, where he's both interested in actual spaces and actual landscapes, but also I think comes to be very clear that it's an imaginary landscape as well, in some ways kind of a, a fanciful and almost uh, absurd one at the same time. So I think that, that really starts particularly Japanese ambient music off on a very interesting path towards taking imaginary landscapes as something very playful as well. It's not just about uh, calm and increased productivity or increased uh, uh, well-being, but also it could be something to play with as well, which I think I I find really exciting about the way a lot of public spaces in in Tokyo experiment with background music even now. 
And one of the really, for me, interesting things about the treatment of his work in particular is that you're taking us into not just um, his music, uh, but also the album covers. And this is, I think, a really great example of the ways in which the book um, is making these media speak to each other, right? It's not like we're talking about film or music or something else. I mean, there's a really, at least for me, right, as one reader, there's a really strong point that emerges um, out of this book about the kind of interrelatedness of these media um, as really parts of a, a coherent landscape. And I think that looking at the album covers as, as part of this phenomenon that you just talked about is um, one way of really manifesting this in, in a way that's also really fun because they're super cool. So as we move here um, into the next chapter, um, I think we're going to come back to something that you also mentioned a little bit earlier, and this is the kind of the, the pacing or the rhythms of the Japanese city. So chapter three looks very closely at ambient video to map how what you call the atmospheric attunements of ambient video intersect with the, the spatial rhythms, as you call them, of everyday life in contemporary urban Japan. But it starts us out along this path in a really, really interesting way. Inspired by the work of Henri Lefebvre and his work on rhythm analysis, it opens by mapping the rhythms of a trip to Nakano. So could you maybe as a kind of way of opening up what you think is most interesting about this chapter, um, just kind of talk a little bit about that, mapping the rhythms of a trip to a city like this for you, um, kind of what's most engaging and important about that process and that practice and so far as it gets us to something um, that you think is important about ambient uh, video and ambient music in this chapter. Something, getting back to, to what you just mentioned and the, the importance of moving between different media, um, something I really appreciate about the Feb's rhythm analysis work um, is his emphasis on how rhythm is something that ties together all these different scales of experience from sort of seasonal cycles and the, the rotation of the earth, all of these sort of large scale cycles um, down to the rhythms of the body and the rhythms of movement to the gait of, of walking down the street um, and then everything in between. So uh, I think it allows for thinking about something like video or music um, as fitting in with, with all of these different rhythms and indeed affecting these different rhythms as well, particularly the physical rhythms. So was, I found it important for understanding background video and ambient video and how they fit into these larger urban environments, that it's not just about spatially where they're situated or understanding sort of how they're influencing people who come in direct contact with them, but also how they fit in with these larger rhythmic structures. So if they're putting forth a particular pace and a particular um, way of organizing time, um, it's inevitably coming up against the rhythms of the trains, the rhythms of the, the passerby, the rhythms of other things going on within these same spaces, particularly in these very high, high uh, density, high, highly trafficked parts of the city. So the opening of that chapter of trying to, and certainly in no way completely or thoroughly, but in trying to sort of make a start at mapping out some of the rhythms you might find at a very highly uh, utilized train station and everything that goes around goes on around a train station in a Japanese city. And to try and get a sense of sort of all these different rhythmic experiences that are going on and how the experience of a particular work of uh, video or music or literature or anything you might engage with is inevitably 
taking place within these larger rhythmic structures and, in, and negotiating them at the same time. Now, the chapter understands ambient video as, in the words of the chapter, a practical way to tune the self within an urban sea of intersecting rhythms. And you talk about this in terms of a notion that comes up repeatedly through the book. Um, so I just wanted to take a moment to ask you to talk about it, uh, and that is freedom, right? Um, that this affords a, a kind of freedom in this context. For you, what's important about this notion of freedom as it operates here? I think and this is where I think um, Nicholas Rose's work really gets at this in a, a really insightful way. And, and in some of the ways uh, he is working through Michel Foucault's uh, ideas about freedom uh, within sort of specific structures, freedom within bounds or freedom within particular habits and, and uh, behaviors. It's not so much that... Um, this sort of limited range of choices, whether you, you get on the train or you don't get on the train or whether you, you take this train or take the next train, these kind of choices are not simply uh, the limited horizons of, say, a capitalist society, as, as some would, would describe them, but um, there's a certain kind of actual physical freedom that emerges from within them. And it even I think one thing I like about Lefebvre's work is he, he comes, comes out quite forcefully in saying there's this it's kind of a dance almost. There's there's some engagement and some real agency to be had in um, choosing how to move within these existing structures and sort of where you want to go from moment to moment, where you want to choose. So at the same time, as it's forcing you into particular behaviors, um, you're immediately tasked with following certain rules and um, your day-to-day daily life, daily rhythms are being uh, structured by these existing rules and uh, infrastructures, there's still nonetheless inevitably spaces within that to decide sort of how you're going to move through it and how you're going to engage. Um, so um, finding freedom within structure, I think, is, is a, for me an important way of thinking about how neoliberalism is working, but also how these, these different urban rhythms are working. But it's, it's not just a top-down imposition of structure upon the individual that's restricting them, but it's also not um, the totally free individual who's deciding what to do and you know, the city is whatever they want to make of it. It's this intersection between the two, uh, which is where both freedom and control are being constantly negotiated. So speaking of the role of freedom in deciding how to move through something, the book is very much like that too. And when we got to the, or when I got to the second half of this chapter, this is chapter three, the way I actually moved through your book fundamentally changed. Um, and and it, it took me much longer to get through the book in this wonderful, delicious way. It was fabulous and it was wonderful. And I don't usually experience books like this. So I just want to mark this for listeners and recommend this as one possible way to move through it. So here's what happened. There are lots of examples that come up in this chapter of ambient video that does the kind of work that you're talking about. And some of them can be 
glimpsed, at least in some form, at least in part, at least in moments online. So there are a number of works like this. And what started happening for me as I moved through the book is I would read about your description of one of these works, go and do some exploration online, come back to it, and it totally changed. Um, and I, I think uh, provided a really super rich, um, super inspiring experience of the book. Um, and so I just want to, first of all, thank you for that. And then um, maybe mark a couple of these works and ask you to talk about um, one or two that you find most interesting. Okay, so some of these include the work of Issei Shoko, which we'll also talk about in the next chapter, um, which is super beautiful. And there's also a work here called Apoptosis by um, Tsuchiya Takafumi. And there's another work, and I just want to name these because these were like my favorites um, from this chapter, um, a work by Kurokawa uh, Ryoichi called Rio Five Horizons. All of these works can be glimpsed even in um, kind of small bits online. And they're all amazing and inspiring and beautiful. And so for you, um, do you have a favorite work that's mentioned in this chapter that you would be willing to open up for us a little bit briefly? Well, yeah, I'm happy to hear you. You took the time to, to look them up and I definitely recommend that as a, a way of engaging with this kind of material, even if you're just letting it play sort of in the background uh, as you're reading. Um, yeah, I think all the, I, I definitely chose to focus on these particular works for, um, I think hopefully for some of the same reasons you found them engaging. I think they, they capture a lot of the, the different aspects of what I'm talking about, but they're also very, I think, effective examples of how ambience can both provide a very atmospheric sort of uh, mood enhancing or mood sort of shaping experience, but also do something that's not quite so straightforward at the same time. Um, so, for example, the one of the Issei Shoko works I talk about, Summer Afternoon, um, which is quite simple and, and straightforward in some ways. It's images of an empty park, um, mostly unpopulated, and every so often there are uh, text, English text that, that flashes by talking about um, the narrator who we never really see, um, what she does you know, throughout the day. This day is the... Uh, spent in some way related to this park, it's not quite clear. Um, and then later on, on the soundtrack, which has this kind of steady, uh, leisurely paced beat running through it, we hear a weather report that the the, uh, the summer rains are coming and you kind of, you suddenly you get a, a feel from the images as well that there's sort of a, a humidity in the air and something maybe about to happen. Um, it works like these where there's it's very effective on a, a very straightforward level of, of putting you in a very specific mood, um, sort of lazy summer day in, in an empty park. But there's also a tinge of uncertainty there and of uh, tension, uh, whether that's just the tension of waiting for the, the, uh, the rain to finally come, uh, the rain to finally start falling, or whether it's something more threatening is never quite clear. And it's, it's works like that, I think, that are both effective on a straightforward sort of mood designing level, but also it get this kind of uncertainty, which I think is also very important to an ambient aesthetic where you're never quite sure where it's going to lead you. 
And this is actually, I mean, you're mentioning themes as well that are super central um, as we move through the book to the next chapter, um, which also looks very closely at one of the works of Issei Shoko, in particular, a collaborative work with Steve Jansen called Swimming in Qualia. Okay, so in taking us into this work from 2007, Swimming in Qualia, and you can see part of this online. If you just, um, for listeners, if you just Google this, um, you can at least glimpse parts of this work um, and it's just, and get a sense of, at least in, in a translation of the work into this format, like how moving and arresting and beautiful, uh, and I think it's all those things. But in talking about this, you raise some of the issues that just came up now, um, the kind of the importance of tension and uncertainty, um, but also you talk about the importance here of a kind of shallow depth as it manifests in this work and works like it. Um, now you talk about this idea of shallow depth as it prevent, uh, presents rather viewers with a kind of freedom to let their attention drift in and out while also providing a kind of sustained mood of what you call indeterminate calm. So can you talk a little bit about this, maybe with um, kind of this work in particular as a reference point, um, what do you think is central for us to understand about this idea of shallow depth and the related concepts that animate this work for you? Part of what I'm hoping to do with this chapter is take some larger discussions that have been central to talking about um, Japanese media aesthetics, particularly anime, manga, and those contexts of this tension between two-dimensional works and, and three-dimensional works, um, and take that to a, a space that, that approaches it from a different angle. So it's not so much about depth as something, uh, three-dimensional depth as something immersive and, and realist, and two-dimensional depth is somehow outside of that. Um, but thinking about... Um, depth as a way of negotiating attention and uh, creating a sort of partial sense of immersion. So this is um, the idea of shallow depth, which comes up in, originally in Joe Deleuze's work on Francis Bacon's paintings, um, where he uses these grids and these, these abstract cubes to create canvases that both pull you in, but also refuse to completely immerse you and completely take you outside of the space that you're in. I love that's a, that book. Uh, just interjecting, yeah, just talking yeah, to someone fantastic about that. Yeah, it's a fantastic book. Sorry. So that idea, yeah, so the, the idea in there and, and, and uh, Deleuze's approach to, to Bacon's work, I found really helpful for thinking about what painting or, or video, uh, uh, motion graphics, any kind of uh, seemingly thought image, um, how that can work to negotiate space in a way that's that's not simply a binary. It's not just graphic flatness versus uh, a more realist three-dimensional space, um, immersive space. But there's a way that um, can allow for sort of a little bit of both, um, which in terms of the negotiation of attention. So this, this other idea I found extremely useful for thinking about ambience that I, I take up in this chapter is um, the idea of soft fascinations, uh, which comes out of an environmental psychology context, but the idea that you can um, s remain focused on something that has inherent interest, but it's not going to completely arrest your attention. So you cannot look away and you're, you're forced to, to keep watching in a way that uh, a lot of videos uh, capture the attention. Um, but particularly if you're going to make a video that's going to work in an ambient way, it's as ignorable as it is interesting. You can focus on it or you can choose to 
to think about something else or to, to look elsewhere. Um, there's a certain kind of spatiality to that as well. So this, I, this shallow depth as it's working in ambient video, I think is a way of creating spaces that are both going to function as immersive engaging environments, but are also not going to completely take you out of the space that you're already in, which in the, the case of swimming in quality is a, a gallery space where you might be walking around and looking around at other things. And it's up to you how long you want to stay, how long you want to, to watch the video, how you want to arrange yourself in relation to it. So it's a way of creating spaces that are both immersive and engaging and uh, attuning, uh, able to, to create a certain kind of attunement, but at the same time, it's in a kind of neoliberal way, respecting your own autonomy and not trying to completely absorb you and completely capture your attention. Now, one of the central themes that the book is concerned with is the idea of healing, right? Um, and this is going to come up increasingly as we move through the chapters. But here in this chapter, you talk specifically about um, this kind of aesthetic emphasis on uncertainty and on mystery and argue that this kind of this tension, right, with this, this uncertainty, this mystery might actually help a work's ability to create a mood that's healing rather than to hinder it. So can you talk a little bit, um, just kind of briefly about this, this interplay between uncertainty and mystery and the healing or potentially healing aspects of the mood that the work creates? Yeah, so this is going back to what we were discussing earlier about the sort of strange confluence between relaxation aesthetics and and ambient aesthetics. Um, I was really fascinated to read in some of the environmental psychology research that this sense of mystery and uncertainty um, was actually crucial to um, the emotional benefits that the psychologists were arguing for in relation to, say, taking a walk through the forest where you were seeing uh, you were immersed in an environment where you couldn't actually see everything that was going on and there was a sense that it expanded beyond what you could immediately perceive. There was a sense of um, extent of the the environment sort of going beyond um, what you could uh, comprehend. But that in itself was actually made it more effective as a space of uh, what the environmental psychologists call attention restoration of uh, sort of putting you in a particular uh, frame of attention where you're, you're not, don't have to focus on the environment around you uh, with full concentration. So in thinking about traditionally this, this sort of ideological divide between avant-garde aesthetics of uh, shock and uh, uh, upsetting sort of habitual behaviors and um, uh, a f- sense of uh, understanding the world and upsetting that um, versus what a lot of those writers and especially the, the anti-background music critics, uh, the way they're describing more sort of utilitarian uh, relaxation media as something that's just sort of straightforwardly soporific and a kind of anesthetic that's not doing anything uh, with uncertainty. It's, it's too certain. It's too stable. But here was researchers trying to actually measure uh, attention and emotional responses. They were finding that it was actually the uncertainty that was more effective, even if all you're interested in was creating, for example, designs for hospitals that would be the most relaxing and the most restorative. You actually wanted some uncertainty and some 
mystery there in the artwork and in the, the atmosphere and the, the, the environment, um, that this actually creates a sort of a, a space for reflection and attention restoration. Um, so this was one hinge, I think, that's really important for understanding why, even if you were purely interested in utilitarian mood regulation, why an ambient aesthetic might actually be working better than, um, for example, the more straightforward background music that I described earlier on in the book, which is much more predictable and much more grounded and always resolves quite deliberately. Thank you so much. Now, as we move into the um, last two chapters before the conclusion, we move into chapters that take on um, two different media, right, than we've been talking about. The first is film, and then we're going to talk briefly about literature. So just I'm just going to hit the ball back to you for Chapter 5. Chapter 5 focuses on a film um, that you can actually also see um, uh, glimpses of, at least, online. And I this is another thing that slowed down um, beautifully, wonderfully, deliciously again slowed down my process of the book um, because going back and forth was fabulous. This is a film called Tony Takatani. It's an Ichikawa Jun film from 2004 that's based on a short story by Murakami Haruki. Okay, so you carefully analyze the film here, um, and I think open it up in, in a really wonderful way to look at the emergence of what you call a subtractivist ambiance in post-industrial Japan. So for listeners who may not know um, anything about this film, can you briefly talk about um, sort of what's the big deal about this film? What's going on here? Can you briefly um, kind of recount what you think is important about it for us? And how is it relating to an idea of subtractivist ambiance? Yeah, so both in the original Murakami short story and in in the film um, centers around uh, the main character, Tony Takitani, who um, grows up in the, the 60s and 70s and is somewhat uh, isolated. He's very much a, a loner character who keeps to himself um, at the same time as the student protests and the, the political upheavals of the late 60s are going on around him. Um, sort of keeps his head down and, and aims to live this very simple, straightforward life. Um, despite this, uh, falls in love with this woman who just appears in his, uh, design studio one day. Um, they seem to be having, they seem to be living this sort of placid idyllic existence, um, domestically, uh, for a short time. Uh, but then that, uh, quickly falls apart as it, it turns out that she has this kind of compulsion to continually buy more and more clothing, um, designer clothing, which soon takes over their apartment, um, and causes this first rift. Um, and this, particularly the film really struck me as a way that even though the story on it, on its surface seems to be a rather cautionary tale about, um, trying to design this kind of smooth, peaceful home reality, um, that would erase any kind of, uh, heightened emotion. Um, so Tony and his wife both create this this environment for themselves that's sort of intensely peaceful and, and serene. Um, but despite this, um, the, the attempt to cover over everything seems to lead to inevitably to tragedy, um, if you look at the story itself. But then watching the film, um, particularly Ichikawa's approach to the film, where he very, very deliberately absorbs a lot of this this restrained 
minimalist subtractivist as, as I describe it uh, style in a way that's almost overpowering for the, the viewers as well. So you, you come out of the, the film, at least I, I came out of the film feeling very peaceful and, and relaxed uh, as a result of its, its structure and its aesthetics. Um, but at the same time, there's something in the story that seems to be hinting now and then um, that in the same way that the film is, is having this very uh, relaxing effect on the viewers, um, the way the, the characters in the film are using these same sorts of materials to condition their own emotions and, and lead this very peaceful life, that there's something not quite right there, um, that there's there's something perhaps dangerous to that as well, trying to erase any kind of heightened emotion or uh, uh, heightened mood out of the picture. Uh, so I was really fascinated by this film as a way that's, that's both... Um, fully embracing a very an ambient sort of minimalist subtractivist aesthetics that, that aspires to a life that's completely beautifully designed and, and beautifully peaceful, um, but is also getting at um, the aspects of life that will resist that. Um, and particularly things that um, I'm not sure Murakami or Ichikawa were really thinking about, but that nonetheless emerged through the film in terms of the, the gender dynamics between Tony and his wife, uh, who's named Eiko in the film, doesn't have a name in the original story, um, and how the, the different distribution of the labor involved in creating these very emotionally uh, placid environments, how the, the differential labor involved uh, plays out uh, over the course of the, the narrative as well. Now, this idea of labor actually really nicely takes us into um, kind of the last case study of the book as well, um, because this idea, the idea of affective labor also comes up in your discussion of literature as a technology of ambient uh, subjectification. Now, this is chapter six, and it looks specifically at the possibilities of the novel as a mood-regulating device. And it does this by focusing on what seems like a super fascinating case. This is Kurita Yuki's now I'm going to pronounce this um, because it's almost lunchtime in a way that might be inappropriate. So let me know if I'm doing this right. Hotel Mole. I want it to be like chicken mole. Is it not mole? <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, well, it's mole. It's it's mole originally. It's mole. In, okay, so, so hotel mole. From, yeah. Okay, so hotel mole. Um, so I want, <laughs> I want be, it to be, be like chicken mole, right? right? It's like <laughs> that's delicious. Um, but okay, so Kurita Yuki's Hotel Mole. This is a story that, among other things, is uh, kind of about providing effective labor at a hotel that's designed to provide the deepest sleep possible. So um, can, I'm going to, again, hit this back to you. Can you tell us a little bit about this book and for you, what's important about this book um, insofar as it opens up a way of thinking about literature as a mood regulating device? Yes, it's similar to the, I think the, the last two chapters, um, I place them at the end very deliberately in, in the order to utilize what narrative works like these can do and, and both producing moods and uh, affective attunement in similar ways to the music and, and video examples from earlier on in the book too. Uh, but also because they have these, these narrative then, uh, aspects as well, they're able to get at some of the larger social structures and, and social tensions that are underlying the production of this, these same moods. Um, and I think the, the book does this, the um, Kurita's book does this really beautifully in c 
imagining the setting of a hotel that's designed to produce incredibly relaxing and deep and restorative sleep uh, for guests, but at the same time, because it's told from the perspective of uh, somebody who's just hired to work at the front desk, who's quite stressed out about this new job, um, it ends up highlighting a lot of the background work um, that needs to be done in order to create these these very uh, refined restorative environments for the customer. Um, and this is, so this idea of background labor, or ambient labor, um, really struck out uh, to me as a way of thinking about all the work that gets dispersed into the atmosphere. So the, especially for the receiver of the services, um, they're not even really aware of all of the labor that's going on. And that's actually essential to their ability to relax and forget about everything. Um, so this is this paradox there of um, labor that's erased and could be critiqued uh, for that very reason. Um, but it's also at the same time, almost essential that it's, it becomes unnoticeable uh, for it to have its intended effect. Um, so that was, that's what interested me in particular about this uh, what Krita is working through in this novel. But at the same time, when you read it, it similar to Tony Takitani, it's extremely uh, well devised to have a very soporific effect on the reader as well. Um, and not just myself, but uh, I encountered many reviews of the, the book in various contexts as well that report similar feelings of comfort and, and sleepiness uh, while reading. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to think about ways of approaching literature, almost from the perspective of, of ambient music or uh, the sort of rhythm-oriented perspective, um, if reading the text as well is, is having similar, has a similar potential to use rhythm and structure and form in ways that can produce certain kinds of uh, mood attunements. Um, how that would work within a literary context. And I think this is where um, Gumbrecht's work on atmosphere it was a book that was published pretty late on uh, as I was writing uh, my work, but it, he describes um, in uh, his research on sort of atmosphere or reading for atmosphere as a form of approaching literature. Um, he notes that it's actually pretty close to how most readers read, um, reading for ideological positions or reading sort of deconstructively or all these other forms of reading that have been developed um, are certainly important as well. But actually reading for mood, reading for sort of putting yourself in a particular atmosphere, a particular frame of mind is actually a quite prominent use of literature. Um, and I think there's an argument to be made that particularly literature that's designed to be read in transit, uh, as a lot of particularly these small portable Japanese paperbacks are read, um, that maybe it's not so much about the plot or about the story as much about reading for a particular kind of mood or atmosphere. So that even, I mean, I guess thinking about this, I was struck that uh, that's something that's, that's a comment that has often come up about Japanese cinema, um, particularly outside of Japan, that it's often more about mood than about character or about plot. Um, but it was also a criticism uh, uh, waged at more recent uh, Japanese literature, say from the, the late 70s onward, that compared to the earlier, more politically, directly politically engaged writers of the 
the post-war period, that this was just literature about mood and, and kind of put you in a, a good mood, relaxing mood, but not much beyond that. Um, I wanted to really highlight that itself as a, as a craft uh, and as an aesthetic strategy, which with its own complexities and its own real effects on readers. Thank you, Paul. Now, now, as we move to our conclusion, we also move to the conclusion of the book. And before we actually conclude, I just want to ask you um, to speak to one other thing that comes up, both at the end of the chapter we were just talking about and also kind of centrally in the conclusion, because it seems like a good way to wrap up and it seems like an important idea. At the end of chapter six, which we were just talking about, you talk about the ways that ambient media can lead to a reflection on, in the words of the book, weakness care and healing as core components of the self. And this idea of weakness and the kind of power of weakness recurs in the conclusion as well as we move out from the book into um, kind of what comes next. So the conclusion, among other things, looks to a number of origin stories of people working in and on and with ambient media insofar as they point to, again, what the book calls a growing awareness of personal vulnerability and a growing understanding of how media can serve as atmospheric tools for healing self and others. And there's lots of stories here of how people first developed an interest in ambient media after some kind of experience um, of personal, um, either because it was happening to them or to someone that they cared about, illness or weakness. So can you maybe um, kind of take us to our conclusion by talking a little bit about weakness? Um, what is What kind of work is weakness doing here? And for you, what's interesting about that? Yeah, so I'm drawing on some of the fascinating work of um, Washita Kiyokazu, the Japanese uh, phenomenologist uh, who works on care and, and healing often in his more recent work. Um, and for me, this is a way of thinking about sort of alternative ethics that we might find in thinking about ambient subjectivation, um, as I describe it, or sort of how the atmosphere or the environment shapes the individual. Um, if so far it's, it's often been uh, sort of polarized, these are the, we're emphasizing that the individual is completely self-sufficient and self-determining. doesn't matter what's going on around the person. They can decide whatever they want um, and do whatever they want. Or... Um, the opposite, that the environmental influence is somehow insidious and is going to make you behave ways that are not in your best interests and you need to be suspicious and, and guard against it. Um, but I, I think there's another way of approaching this and that seeing, actually understanding how much um, everyday life, the sense of self, um, sense of identity is, is continually being shaped by the surrounding world, the immediate sensory surrounding. Um, but at the same time, that's not completely determining uh, behavior as well. Um, there's perhaps a, a kind of humility that might emerge. Um, and it does emerge, I think, in these, these stories that I describe uh, at the end of the book of moments when, especially often people who did have a lot of power to determine their own lives, who are at quite... Uh, high points in their career in terms of their, their artistic or musical career. They, they had a lot of people, you know, uh, following their orders and, and following their commands, but then suddenly they were in a position where they were stripped of that power and, and forced to confront their own vulnerabilities and, and limitations and how susceptible they were nonetheless uh, to the, the surrounding environment. Um, 
and I think there's a if we take that as a starting point, there's a sort of uh, ethics uh, to that as well of understanding sort of the inevitable uh, in mesh of the the individual and the, the immediate surroundings. If we really take that seriously, um, maybe we would think more about the kind of background music, for example, or the kind of environmental designs we're creating, um, who's, who's able to feel at home in them and who's not. Paul, thank you so much. I think that's a really beautiful uh, point to end on. Um, and, but we're not entirely at the end because I want to give you an opportunity um, in case there's anything that we haven't had a chance to talk about um, that you want to get out there for listeners to do that now. So of course uh, there's no way we can be comprehensive, right? There's a ton of stuff in the book we didn't have a chance to get to, but there, is there anything in particular that we didn't treat that you'd like to mention before we move on? Uh, I think we we covered a lot. I was I was glad to hear you mention um, sort of going back and forth between some of the works I describe um, and reading the book. That's for me as well. That's often the most rewarding way of reading um, books that are engaging with with films, for example, or music, is to take the time to go back and forth. Um, but I also hope, as I as I mentioned in the conclusion, um, that this will be a, this my approach here will be a spur to experimenting with your own environment or the, the reader's environment um, as they're reading um, in various ways. And just whether or not um, you come to the same conclusions, um, just kind of taking that up as a, as a, as a site of experimentation um, to see what kind of effects um, the atmosphere, the ambience has. And now that the book is out, what's next for you? What are you currently working on and inspired by? Uh, well, actually, I'm I'm happy to say I'm still fascinated. <laughs> I think there's a lot of a lot of uh, books where uh, writers finish them and then want nothing to do with it. Um, and I had I certainly had those moments, but I, I'm actually still quite fascinated by a lot of the the things that I think I just barely scratched the surface of. Um, two two questions in particular. I think one more focused on. Uh, the past um, is the role of sound design. Um, I, I engage with it a little bit, but particularly at a, a moment in the 70s and 80s onward where it's often said there's a sort of fracturing of the, the unified media audience. Um, there's sort of mass media in the media post-war, but then everyone withdraws to their own individual hobbies and interests. Um, at the same time, there's a rise of sound design uh, in public settings, for example, the the jingles for the train stations that are heard by millions of people every day, um, those sorts of design, environmental design contexts, where the task is to create, say, a two or three second sound that will provide certain sorts, signal certain forms of affective engagement, certain communicate, certain uh, communicate certain things, but also be robust enough to work for all kinds of people who are going to be engaging with this on a different everyday life. Um, so this, this question of sort of design and aesthetics for continual everyday environmental engagement, um, the history of that more broadly is something I've, I've been working on more recently, particularly in terms of sound design. Um, and the other sort of the other end things that are happening now um, with uh, augmented reality environments and um ubiquitous computing or what's sometimes called ambient intelligence of using 
computer and uh, algorithmic approaches to designing very responsive environments. Um, sometimes it can even read the emotions of those present. Um, so the what's sometimes called affective computing of trying to scan uh, faces and, and other other ways of uh, reading the the emotions of those engaged uh, with particular environments and then responding in turn. And I think that's both something I find incredibly frightening, but also <laughs> incredibly fascinating um, how a lot of these same questions of environmental attunement are going to shift once the environment itself is, is watching, watching you as well <laughs> and trying to figure out how you're feeling and how it can respond uh, to have you get you to behave a certain way or a different way. Well, both of those sound like awesome projects too. So be in touch when those are done and we'll talk again. Um, And in the meantime, best of luck with that work. And thanks very much for taking time away from that to talk with me and um, with us about this one. It's really been a pleasure and congrats on uh, our super, super fascinating book. Thanks. Yeah, I really enjoyed our conversation. You have been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very, very, very much for joining us. And we will catch you next time.